Hi, Steph. How are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. So we have a unbelievable show today, actually. <laughs> oh my gosh. I it's, it's a it's a little nerdy. It is a little nerdy. It is nerdy in the most fascinating way. <laughs> no, I mean any of you nurses will love it. I think we learned so much. Yeah, we have Dr. Alston from an as an he's an attending for infectious disease and then we also brought back uh, Cindy Noyce uh, who we had earlier a couple weeks ago on the podcast and he's also an attending for infectious disease exactly yeah. yep they just explained so much to us about employee exposure about the testing of covid and it's really really cool uh, i hope you guys will listen and and uh, take it all in because I am super excited about it. I am too. I mean, it's it's both interviews are about twenty minutes to a half hour, but all the information in there is was pretty elucidating to both of both of us. And I don't know. I think that it's going to be fascinating. And really, Cindy Noise also, Doctor Noise encouraged anybody who had questions to reach out to her or email her, which I thought was a, extremely generous. And yeah, we're pretty excited about these interviews. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought they were. I thought they went really well. I hope you guys can enjoy. I hope everybody is doing well out there. I yeah, know healthy um, and safe. Yep, I am so happy to live in Vermont. I cannot tell you. Yeah, right we now. did good. Yeah, <laughs> that was terrible English, but like we did, we did good with our infection rate. We did so good. I'm so proud of our little state. And and I mean, obviously, it's still going on. There's still a lot to do, but uh, it's very exciting because the last couple of days here, it's weather has been beautiful. Finally, yep. Get rid of that snow that we uh, had a couple uh, week. Or I guess it was just a week ago. A week ago. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And get outside. All right, so we start first with Dr. Alston, so let's introduce him. Yep. All right, take care, everybody. So again, I'm Steph, and this is... I'm Leslie Twitchell. Nice to meet you. You, I know you by name. Yeah. Um, I've yeah. definitely seen you around the inpatient areas and floors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been here a long time. Dr. Alston, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to everybody who's listening? And also your role here at UVMMC. Yeah. So my name is Kemper Alston. I'm a professor of medicine in the College of Medicine, and I'm an attending in the Infectious Diseases Division in the Department of Medicine. I serve as the Division Chief for Infectious Diseases, and for a long time I've served as the Hospital Epidemiologist and Chair of the Infection Prevention Committee, so I work closely with the crew in infection prevention. And we obviously have been very involved in COVID preparedness uh, since the outset. Right. So yeah. this is a hot topic in your career, in your career trajectory. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's historic, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, no one's ever seen anything like this in our lifetime. You know, the only thing people can compare it to is the big Spanish flu epidemic or pandemic from a hundred years ago. Right. So nothing like this. I mean, the closest sort of sensational thing I can remember happening would be HIV. I would, yeah, but exactly. But that was just so, you know, so fundamentally different that it's hard to compare the two, but... I mean, this has just been life-changing, and the fact that it happens to fall in our career specialty makes it even more strange. Yeah, I mean, every day the news changes every day, and, and the information changes every day, and so the, the pace of how things change, you know, is incredible. Some people spend their whole career doing the same thing over and over again, and one thing about infectious diseases is it's constantly changing. Right, yeah, you know, right. This guy's brother, SARS, right, which right, was right. a while back, that scared everybody to death, and it just vanished. And 
was never a big deal in in the U.S. and didn't come to Vermont. But it's it's interesting how similar they are, and uh, this one's just behaved so differently. So one of the things we kind of wanted to touch on today is is really around employee exposure. And I had a colleague of mine on oncology say, if we can't trust the EP- PPE you know, what do we got? And really, it seems like we can trust the PPE. It's what it seems like to me. We've had relatively low employee people who have tested positive for infections and doesn't seem like we've had many who have been caring for COVID who have tested positive. And so that's kind of where we're, that we kind of want to lean towards on this and your your thoughts around that. Yep, there are a lot of, you know, there's just that one question. There are a lot of dimensions to discuss. Part of my role as hospital epidemiologist is I work with employee health, you know, on routine issues like tuberculosis and vax flu shots and needle sticks, the usual day-to-day stuff of employee health. But pandemic began, I've been working with employee health to review every positive employee, and I've talked to virtually all the positive employees by phone and helped employee health decide when they can safely return to work and worked with them infection prevention to say, gee, did they expose any patients? Did they expose any co-workers before they were furloughed? And how are we going to deal with that? So from the beginning, I've kind of scrutinized each employee as each test result came back, and I've given them a lot of thought. And I get asked a lot. I've been asked several times this week. Last week, I get asked a lot, are people getting it on the job? And that's what everyone wants to know, and that sort of speaks to the PPE question you raised. But that's the fundamental question that people ask is, for the employees who have tested positive, were they exposed at work or were they exposed in the community? What I've come to realize is that you obviously can't tell. And it's the same as influenza. When you have a respiratory virus that's circulating widely in the community, when someone turns up positive with flu or COVID, Who's to say they got it at home versus at work? You just don't know. Some things are very associated with being in the hospital, like Clostridium difficile or in the old days, MRSA. MRSA is now common in the community. But in the 90s, MRSA was really uniquely a hospital thing. So when an employee got MRSA, we said, gee, they probably got it at work. Or if an employee gets C. difficile, we say, gee, they probably got it at work. With COVID, at the same time that our employees were developing it, it was being transmitted rampantly in the community, and we were seeing a lot of community cases. So it was very hard to tell. And so I can't answer the question what proportion of our or how many employees developed it at work versus at home because there's just no way to tell. Now, you can make some educated guesses for a lot of cases. Uh, For example, there are some employees who test positive who don't have direct patient care responsibility, a lot of them. So we worried a little bit less about those. There are employees who tested positive who hadn't worked any shifts here in over two weeks. Well, we didn't worry so much about those. There were some employees who tested positive who had high-risk travel. Eh, Maybe we relaxed a little bit about that. We had employees who were working in intense inner-city COVID units somewhere else at the same time and tested positive. Now, we still don't know where they got it, but it's much more likely they got it somewhere else than here. And there are a lot of employees who tested positive who had positive household contacts at home, documented positive contacts at home. And so our first thought was, oh, well, they certainly they got it from their husband or they got it from their wife. That's obvious. If you think about it a little more thoughtfully, even that's up in the air because who's to say they didn't infect their husband? Correct. Right? So it's really, and when you think just about the hospital exposures, we have to stop and remind ourselves that even if they got it at the hospital, 
Did they get it from a patient because the PPE failed? Or did they get it from a staff member who was about to develop symptoms? Or did they get it from a surface, a doorknob, a handrail, a computer terminal, a telephone? It's just impossible to tell. Those, that's some background of the uncertainty of all this. And then I've, I've really scrutinized, as you've probably heard, as of today, May 20th, we know 36 positives. Uh, and the first one, I think, was on March 16th, and the last one was on May 5th. So we've gone over two weeks without a positive, which is great. That's impressive, uh, right? And our busiest week for employees, the busiest, the worst week was the week ending March 29th. So it's a ways ago, six weeks ago. You know, just stopping that, 36 employees out of the hospital tells me they have 8,760 employees. That means 0.4% of our employees have tested positive. Wow. Now, if you look at media reports, none of this has been peer-reviewed published yet, but if you look at media reports on the news, you can find lots of big academic urban medical centers where two, three, four percent of employees are positive, translating to hundreds, in some cases, thousands of cases in employees. And ours is 0.4 percent. Now, that could be a slight underestimate if employees got tested somewhere else, if they got tested out of state and they didn't tell us, or now with the sort of pop-up clinics that the health department's running, you know, if there's some way that they slip through the cracks and if they don't call employee health and tell us they were positive, we might not know it. So the 36 for sure are real. It's, it's not an overestimate, but it could potentially be a slight underestimate. But still, our number is 0.4%, which just on paper, you don't have any infections, but on paper, we feel pretty good about 0.4%. Well, I was going to ask um, you just to kind of walk through when you find out an employee is positive, what does that look like from your standpoint? So in the lab or and or employee health call me and notify me. So I should hear about all positive employees. And then what I've done for all but the very few, few at first is I call them on the phone and sort of interview them and ask a bunch of questions. And then infection prevention usually calls them in a follow-up call to get more information about staff contacts and patient contacts because they're better at eliciting that information than I am. So that's, and that's really, that's all that's involved. And then we make a plan with employee health about when the person can safely return to work mm -hmm. based on the date when they got sick and how their symptoms are resolving. And then what yeah. happens to the people that may have been exposed to that person? Well, there we've allowed them to keep, now we have universal masking, that changed everything. Okay. Because before we had universal masking, if we had staff who were exposed, we were worried that they could transmit it before they got sick. Early on, there was some thought about furloughing staff who were exposed. I think what we've come to realize is that occupational exposures are probably much more brief and low risk than home exposures. We worry much more about home exposures. They're much more transient, and we're, with universal masking, we think the risk of someone spreading it is quite low because they're not creating the droplet nuclei that transmit infection. If you cough, droplets just get embedded on the inside of the mask. Okay. So we think they're lower risk than in the past, and we didn't 
of all the contacts we investigated, we didn't find any other cases. None of our contacts went on to develop an illness that I'm aware of. So what we've been doing for the last couple of weeks since universal masking is we've been notifying staff through their supervisor that they may have been exposed on the job. Mm -hmm. We don't tell them to whom they were exposed, but we say they may have been exposed on the job and that if they develop symptoms, they have to stay home immediately and call employee health and they always have to wear a mask, but otherwise they can keep working. So with universal masking, it hasn't been a huge change for the employees. For the patients who might have been exposed, we notify the attending of record and have them discuss it with the patient and make sure the patient is, it knows to look out for symptoms. Right. And for okay. community contacts, we've referred people to the Department of Health, you know, what to do about their mother-in-law who's in the home or something like that. We've generally referred them to the health department or people can look online for information. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you can look further at the, the age of our employees who have tested positive ranges from 21 to 73. And the median age is 35. In the big CDC study that was published, I think the median age was exactly the same. Interesting. Hmm. So that's pretty much what you know. There in the CDC study, the median age was 42. Ours was 35. So our crew is young, and our crew is 75% women. So 27 out of the 36 employees who have tested positive are women. And I, for, at first, I looked at that 75, and it said, "Oh my God, there's something there we have to be worried about." Wasn't sure what it meant, but then I found out from employee health that for all of our employees altogether, 73% are women. Oh, oh so, uh -huh. so it made sense if you looked so at it. If, if it. If the infections are happening randomly in the community, it would be the same distribution. And in the CDC study, 73, which is national, 73% female. Gotcha. So that didn't, that didn't pan out so much anymore. So that was good news. And then the million dollar thing was to look at the job description. That was what I always was most interested in was getting right. a job description from employees and dates that they worked. And just for your, for your audience, I think what people want to think about is against 36 different individuals, all confirmed positive, not suspect cases, but all confirmed positive. Five were attending physicians, five out of the 36. Okay. And those five came all from five different departments. And only one was a COVID provider, and that person did not provide COVID care on this campus. So it didn't seem like there was any signal among attending physicians that PPE was failing or they weren't using PPE or we were putting them at risk of coming to work. Only 5% were positive and they didn't cluster by any department and there didn't seem to be any relationship to taking care of COVID patients. For residents, uh, physician residents, there was one, one case and that person did not take care of any COVID patients. They got infected pretty early on and did not take care of any COVID patients. 16 out of the 36 are RNs. Four of those are travelers, 12 or not. Three nurse managers and a nurse educator. And then the floors all over the place, a huge diverse group of floors, which is good. It didn't seem to cluster by any floor. There were two ED nurses, which bothered me a little bit, but one of those clearly acquired it in a big city elsewhere, looking oh, okay. at the dates and their work shifts. There's one case, one of all these RNs that was working on McClure 6, our COVID floor, and working with COVID patients. And that I can't say. Um, it's possible that person got it at work. They also had sick people at home, so it's possible they got it at home. 
I think the sick people at home had not been tested. But we looked back and looked at all that person's floor assignments, and they had taken care of COVID patients. So that was one out of the 36 that bothered me. The other 14 to make 36, the other 14 were all from all different departments, security, physical therapy, psychology, radiology, medical assistant, lab, information technology, human resources, health information management, dialysis, environmental services, emergency room. There was just no cluster. It was like wow. you just... You just took a random sample of our hospital population, and that's what you got. So that was very reassuring that it didn't seem like one department or one floor or one type of person was particularly at risk. I mean, most of our cases were in nurses, but most of our employees are nurses as well. Right, right, right. So it's hard to, it's hard to tell. Only 72% of the job duties involve significant face-to-face -face patient contact. So not everybody even had patient contact. Five had high-risk travel, and a third of them, 12 out of the 36, had a confirmed household positive case, oh, confirmed okay. positive case at home, one-third. And those, we think, are the highest risk. And those are the people we furloughed, a couple people who had high-risk household exposures because we figured they would definitely get sick. We furloughed one physician who had household exposure, and that person went on to develop COVID. And none were contacts of confirmed employee cases. So we didn't find any transmission to patients, and we didn't find any transmission to coworkers. Infection prevention would call the employees and sort of grill them for, for a window of time, grill them about who their closest work contacts were, and we didn't see any cases developing in any of those. And it's been over two weeks now since our last case. So I think that probably basically did not happen. Those are really interesting statistics. Yeah, there's a lot. And then the final thing I'll just mention, well, two, two more things I'll mention. One is symptoms. Only about half reported fever. And interestingly, 29%, almost a third, reported altered smell and taste. Right. Oh, right. You all have probably heard that that's one of the funky, unexpected things yep. with COVID. And some people just had a dramatic loss of smell. I mean, it's just incredible. Is that and something that usually that will, comes back? After? Yeah, hopefully. I've talked to several people who it's come, come completely back, and other people it's getting better. I hope it will resolve completely. But one of the interesting studies that will have to be done nationally is what are the long-term outcomes of COVID patients. Right. Right. We just don't know yet. We had about four people who were completely asymptomatic. They felt fine throughout. Uh, and the final thing I'll mention is probably the most important, is that of the 36 employees who tested positive, None of them had to go to the emergency room. None of them got admitted. None of them went to the ICU. And obviously, none of them died. Because you hear in the media worldwide about right. a lot of healthcare worker cases and a lot of healthcare worker deaths. Correct. And whether those yeah. are hospital acquired related to bad PPE or whether they're community acquired, we don't know. We didn't see anything. And of the 36, all of them have been cleared to return to work as of yesterday. Oh, um, all 36 have been cleared to return to work if they wish. The outcomes so far have been pretty pretty good. I think anecdotally, I would say the two most severe cases, just judging from my phone call of the people who sounded the most miserable, yep. were also the two oldest, which would make sense. Young, the young employees in their 20s and 30s, you know, some of them felt lousy, but it tended to be a milder, tended to be a milder disease. Right. Yeah. A coworker of mine who 
contracted it from his family. He said the worst part was that his eyes ached. <laughs> you know, that oh, was wow. his biggest complaint. So, <laughs> and how have we, I mean, you might not have this data, but how have we compared to other hospitals our size? Good question. We don't know. The, um, in Vermont, the data is not collected on healthcare workers. Most states don't collect data on whether someone's a healthcare worker or not. Or not. You'd think mm -hmm. they would in the United States, but most, not all, but most states do not. Okay. Vermont does not. Interestingly, New York does not collect data on healthcare worker status. Okay. And I haven't heard anything from New Hampshire, and I don't know, Dartmouth would be the obvious comparison yep. and Maine Medical because they're the same size. Correct as us and they're both academic medical centers in a similar geographic environment yep. so that would be an interesting thing and uh, once the dust settles on all, all this and i dare torture them with a telephone call i'll be <laughs> thrilled to see what Dartmouth's experience has been because i haven't heard yet yeah yeah but, but we don't know the the media reports are from new york detroit boston correct yeah um, with you know big hundreds couple thousand employees testing positive with death, horrible. I do think feel that people uh, have felt that Vermont has done a pretty good, you know, job with this this disease. Do you have any reservations with it? Things starting to open up now? Uh, you know, reservations probably a fair term. I mean, I think we're all a little nervous about it. On the other hand, I feel convinced. I mean, I think people are at their wits' end. You know, I mean, I, you look at the food shelf lines and. You know, people with no food and no employment, they can't pay their rent, they can't take care of their kids. I mean, it's a complete disaster. And we are in healthcare. Well, in a pandemic, one thing about working in healthcare is there's work. Right. So, <laughs> right. You know, we're all, we have to remind ourselves and pinch ourselves periodically that we're still employed. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of people aren't. And so I think, you know, this is just my own personal view. I think we have to work towards opening up segments of society and getting people an income and getting them some security and stability in their life. But does it give me reservations? Sure. And the other day, Vermont had a few cases, a few more cases than usual a couple of days ago, and I got all concerned, and then it went back down again. So we'll have to see if, if, you know, as we take steps to open up society, whether the number of cases will go up in a stepwise function also, or whether this bug will just disappear like SARS did, yeah. or whether we can sort of hang in at this low level. You know, maybe they'll just continue to be a low level like this until we get a vaccine. Well, I know. I told a patient the other day, they were asking me what I was doing, and I was like, well, I'm definitely the masking in public places, like stores right. and stuff. And then I told him, really what I'm doing is watching the numbers, and right. if I, you know, if things start to significantly increase, then that's something that I'm going to take more seriously than... I, Fred, I do think that we're in a place in the state where if things, like you mentioned, start to crop up in specific areas, if parts of Montpelier start to have a, a a peak in cases or parts of Burlington, we're probably more able to contain and respond to that than we were previously. And the biggest concern, as it's been throughout, and it's the biggest concern here in Vermont, are nursing homes. Right. And, you know, that's what I, and, and prisons to some degree also, but, right. you know, the nursing home thing can just be horrible. I think that's, you know, if, if it persists at a low level in society and we have staff members going to work carrying it and they go to work in a nursing home, we could still run into problems that way. I think if we if we experience a problem in Vermont, that's going to be it. You know, by 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 the numbers, Vermont's the best state in the nation for this. Correct. Yeah. And it's I talked with Birchwood yesterday to the director there, and they've had almost 14 days of nobody testing positive, including staff. So that yeah. that's great. It's amazing. 
be interesting to see as we test, you know, in the beginning, we were just testing people who were sick. Right. Now we're testing people who are asymptomatic. Right. And I think so far we're not finding much, which is good. I, th yeah. I think I heard that among the asymptomatics that the hospitals tested so far, like hospital admissions and who don't have any COVID symptoms, that we haven't found any unexpected positives right. yet. Hey, have you been tested? Did you ever test yourself? No, I never had. I never developed symptoms. And, yeah. and we were preaching that we weren't testing asymptomatic right, people. Right. So I never even considered it. But, uh, you know, we'll all probably get the antibody test one day to see if we've had it. That's what it's I'm not, excited for. Yeah, it's not quite ready for prime time right. yet, but, but that's probably what we'll end up getting. State <laughs> wants healthcare workers here to be tested. So, you know, who knows? In right. the coming weeks, there may be a push to get us all tested. Right. Do you feel confident in our testing ability right now? Or in the test? Yeah, the test, as with all lab tests, it's not perfect. No lab test is perfect. You know, a positive is, is certainly real. We've had a couple patients who have tested negative, but we really suspected it. We tested right. again, it was negative. We really suspected it. We test them a third time, it's positive. And, and those are scary because yep. then it's like, well, how many, what about all the others? I mean, did I miss all the others? The test isn't perfect. Uh, it's a little uncomfortable to perform. It comes back quickly, which is good. You can get, depending on where the test is done, you can get it back in a few hours. And, you know, I think it's a good test. It's just not perfect. And what we're teaching in the hospital, and this impacts nurses greatly, is that if you really suspect COVID in someone, like they've lost their sense of smell, they're coughing, they're febrile, they have a household contact, it's got to be COVID. Yeah. And their test is negative. We don't take them out of isolation. We just keep retesting them over and over again until we get a positive. Right. And why why some patients test negative and others don't is, is a mystery. Um, but I think on balance, it's a good test. And our lab deserves a lot of credit. I mean, most people aren't in on the information of what our lab had to go through to prepare for this degree of testing. Right, it basically right. took over one whole segment of the lab and wow. making reagents and trying to run down supplies and getting the technicians all uh, up to speed and getting the tests validated. I mean, it's been a massive effort and it's we're doing more tests now than we've ever done. That would so, be another so. interesting interview for us actually is to talk to the lab. Yeah, really what they yeah. needed to do, yeah. Yeah, Dr. Wojiwoda would be a good person to talk to. It's a great That's idea. Great. She's um, the head of the microbiology lab. We'll say uh, that you sent us. <laughs> yeah, she gets mad at me all the time. Uh, yeah, and I was saying before, Dr. Alston, if you need a test, I'd be happy to perform it for you. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, you'll go right through into my frontal lobe. Yeah. No. <laughs> Might improve my personality. Yeah. It only works if it tickles. Then right, exactly. <laughs> so we so really I think, appreciate it. So I think, you know, our, the other group that, that deserves some credit, who people don't think about very often, is the whole supply chain thing. Absolutely, I mean, yeah. I mean, those guys have worked like dogs around the clock trying to get supplies from everywhere in the world, literally, and yeah. we haven't run out, and we've worried about it, and we've worried about it, and we worry about it every day, and we've had certain things be in short supply, and then that gets relieved, and then something else is in short supply, but they've worked really hard, and I think our frontline workers here have had access to the PPE they needed. I mean, it's a pain in the neck. And it's cumbersome and no one wants to wear it, but I think we've had it available. And I think if you look, look hard at our data, I think we've done a reasonably good job at protecting our employees. I, I agree 100%. I felt safer coming to work here at the hospital than I did going to the grocery store. 
Yeah, well, that's what I told people. You know, people, all my friends and family in the community worry about me coming to the hospital. They can't imagine that I would go to a hospital and spend time in a hospital. They're like, that's got to be the most dangerous place. And I'm like, you may be wrong about that. This may be the safest place. Right. Because yeah. everybody's wearing a mask. The hospital's never been cleaner. There are no visitors. The hallways are all empty. And everybody's you know, thinking I, I feel totally safe coming to work. Me too. I, know. I was telling that I work on Chef 4 Infusion, and so we see a lot of immunocompromised patients here and that are on, you know, chronic medications. And they're honestly the best population. They kind of know how to do this right. and how to protect themselves. And I have never felt uncomfortable taking care of them at all. Yeah. And the other interesting thing that only time will tell, and we'll have to tell this story nationally, but... The, it's interesting that during this pandemic in this hospital, other hospital infections, the rates have all gone down. Right. I was wondering about that. That's fascinating. Yeah, so you take everybody, you only have single rooms, no more double rooms. You cut the census in half. You improve hand washing like it's never been. You have everybody with a mask. You tell everybody who's sick to stay home. It's amazing. The hospital infections in general just stopped. Right. I don't think I've had a patient with C. diff on our floor this entire time. Yeah, we went a month. I think we went April with no cases of C. diff. Which wow, that's ahead. impressive. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's a really, that's interesting. So it's, it's an interesting experiment of nature because the thing about hospital infections is you always have to ask yourself, is it really possible to prevent them or am I just spinning my wheels here? I mean, can I really make a difference? Can I really have an impact? And this experiment shows that if you drastically change the way hospitals function and how hospitals are laid out and the density of people in a hospital, be they patients, staff, and visitors, if you cut the numbers and just empty out the place, the hospital infections will stop. Yeah, right. So it, yeah. it proves that it is possible that if we really redouble our efforts on hand hygiene and environmental cleaning, I think it makes a difference. Right. I mean, can we put that in pandemic positives? Yeah, that's a, that's a pandemic. One of the few. Yeah, the few, right? <laughs> what a treat to be able to talk to you about this. It's really great. Yeah, um, we really appreciate it, and that you gave us a lot of really good information that can be shared. So we think good. I appreciate you taking the time to do that. I think it's going to be a hot, a hot download with <laughs> your interview. Yeah, a lot of hits. Yeah, <laughs> we'll definitely send you the link so you can become a subscriber. And thanks for asking. It's It's been fun to talk about it. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's really good information for the nursing crew. I mean, we we always have all these questions and we don't often get a lot of access to you guys in infectious disease. So it's great. Yeah. Thanks. Great. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Take care of yourself. Yeah, bye. you too. Bye. See ya. Bye. <laughs> so welcome back. Thank you. We thanks for having me. downloads um, from the last podcast you were on. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah so it was good. Good information out there. Yeah. We just we talked with Dr. Alston this morning, your colleague. Yep. I heard you guys were going to talk about employee like numbers and yeah. and stuff, which is great. It was fascinating. Yeah. Interesting the different statistics that he shared, so. Yeah. And so and then today we were going to talk about the actual COVID test. COVID-19 test. That sounds great. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. So, I guess we could start with what the COVID-19 test actually detects. And I know that we can also talk about in there somewhere the antibody test, but maybe we can just start with the one that, as nurses, we've been doing a lot of. Yeah, we we can absolutely talk about the PCR test, which is the one that yeah. we're we're actually actively doing on everybody. It feels like right now. So I, I'm happy to talk about the PCR. We should definitely talk about the antibody as well yeah. because yeah. 
I think what people will find is the more we talk about it, the more confusing it actually is. And um, the FDA just approved an antigen test as well, which I don't expect that we will be using. Antigen tests just don't work as well. And and so it might be worth, but those are things people are hearing on the news. So right, I think right, that's right, right. to sort of know what's out there, what we're doing, and maybe a little bit about why. And then, you know, certainly if people have questions, they can always email me is fine. So right. And so the testing that we're doing here at UVM is the uh, PCR or polymerase chain reaction test. And so you're absolutely correct. We obtain the specimen just like we would collect a flu swab. Yep. And you guys have all seen the, you know, every year we publish the, you know, you really have to get the swab <laughs> all the way back into Tickle the, the brain a little. Stephanie, <laughs> we actually like doing it. <laughs> weird that way. And, and welcome to ID, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, if people sort of don't gag or remember their flu test, that they didn't actually get a proper specimen collection, right, yeah. right? So that's the strategy that we're using for specimen collection here, sort of bury the swab to the posterior nasopharynx. And there's a specific swab, and then you stick the swab in that pink fluid. It's viral media, and that helps sort of prepare the cells so that then the next parts of the test can occur. In a, so right now, we're doing the nasopharyngeal or the sort of bury the swab in the back of the nose, but our lab is working on two additional specimen collection techniques. Not yet ready for prime time, but there will be announcements as they, they as those collection sort of strategies have been validated. Because remember, our you know, the FDA says, okay, this lab is available, but every lab we bring into UBMMC has to be validated. So positive yeah. controls, negative controls, with the specimen acquisition part of that by our own lab internally. Interesting, okay. And that helps us know the quality assurance is happening. And so that's really complicated, and we can certainly talk about that at some point, but we are approved to do the nasopharyngeal part of the acquisition, but the lab is also working on the anterior nares, where you, you know, you have a swab that you leave in the, in the sort of anterior part of the nostril for 15 seconds each. And so they're, they're validating that. And there's also saliva is another method of specimen acquisition. Because you can imagine the little kids who we're going to try and test, like, don't really want to have the nasopharyngeal swab. So we're doing that. And then there are other ways that we're using the PCR, though we, we haven't validated it here, but the Vermont Department of Health can do it, is the throat swab or the oropharyngeal swab, and then sputum. There are some people for which we've had a high index of suspicion and their, neg their nasopharyngeal swab's negative. And the recommendation, if you still are worried this person has COVID, is to get a, a lower respiratory tract specimen. So we'll get a sputum from the patient and then send it to Department of Health. And, and Department of Health does both the oropharyngeal and the sputum. And um, have test. you seen that happen where it's negative in the nasopharynx but positive in the sputum? And why? do you have any hypothesis on why that would be? Yes, I've seen it happen in one case here. Okay. We see it happen in flu 
periodically yep. where there's discordance. It's not entirely clear, but there, there are, there's at least one paper that looked at viral loads sort of in the throat and nose. And at least for COVID, as best we can tell right now, yep. knowing all this stuff could change by next week, but as best we can tell right now, people have higher viral loads in you know their nose and their throat early on an infection and and then they probably lose that that sort of virus earlier in those areas but in the lower respiratory tract it may be sort of more durable or long lasting so it's certainly not unprecedented we've seen that in other respiratory pathogens which is why we sort of suggested getting you know a specimen from another place and that's um, if, if we got a negative, but we are like, this sure acts like a duck, sounds like a duck. Exactly. You know, and, exactly. But we're getting this exactly. negative result, we're, but we're pretty sure they're positive. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And this particular person had a very good story and confirmed in a household contact. So there was a very high index of suspicion. Right. Yeah. But it just goes to show, you know, in this person, they weren't shedding enough virus in their upper airway to recover the genetic material of of the virus, which I I find is very interesting and I think may very well happen as a result of where people are in their infection. You know, earlier on an infection, it's probably easier to recover in the upper airway, whereas they may have more residual virus in sputum later in their infection. But again, all of this stuff is still sort of under active investigation. The PCR is, it looks for specific genetic targets of the virus. And the different platforms target may have modestly different targets, but it's looking for genetics, specific genetic pieces of the virus. And it's interesting because it's not like culture, and you, you guys are, are sort of very familiar with the ID attendings who are also like, oh, well, before you give antibiotics, you've right. got to get those blood cultures because <laughs> we're going to have a hard time interpreting sort of those cultures. Right. PCR is very different than culture, and it's quite sensitive. We don't have the specifics in terms of exact sensitivity and specificity, but if the collection's done properly, the tests actually are performing quite well. And, and again, that has to do with the validation that our lab does. I can't give you the you know exact numbers because a gold standard doesn't exist as of yet, yeah. but I think it performs very well as a diagnostic study. Mm -hmm. It's also quite specific in that it looks for specific genetic targets of this particular virus. So if you have another virus like influenza, it's not going to be positive because the genetics of those viruses are actually pretty different from one right. another. So it won't confuse. It won't confuse the virus, and think it your influenza's COVID or vice versa. Right. It shouldn't. It That's shouldn't. exactly yeah. right. You know, again, we're still trying to understand the limitations of the tests and the specimen acquisition. Right. But you know, those. I think. I think it's very reassuring from a diagnostic test. And you know, if you think about the other PCRs that we do. For C. diff, you know, uh, yeah. even we find it when we don't want to look for it, right? Right. right. <laughs> PCR is actually a really reliable method to use as a diagnostic test. But again, your test is only as good as your 
pretest probability or your clinical index of suspicion. And so that's why there's all this discussion about, well, what is the utility of testing people who don't have symptoms? Right. So obviously we're doing a lot of that now because we know that people may have very few symptoms or no symptoms at all with infection, but, you know, are we going to be able to recover the virus effectively? Certainly have seen that it can be recovered, but I think, you know, again, stuff we're all learning as we mm-hmm. go. In terms of the PCR, so the other place that we get hung up, and we know this, and I'll use the example of C. diff, is that people can have genetic sort of material of the virus left over that we can recover by that swab, and they may not be infectious at all anymore. And and so it can't tell us whether or not that virus is alive or dead. Yeah, or young or old in the process is was it <laughs> right? right? And so you know, we might be you have or furloughing first... somebody two weeks of at the end of their, <laughs> their process. The process. That's exactly right. And so, you know, unfortunately we don't have a better test of cure yet. I suspect at some point we will not retest again, you know, as people are recovering from their COVID. But I think many of you have noticed that, you know, for people being to be able to go to a nursing home, they need two negatives. If they've been COVID positive, they need two negative COVID swabs separated by 24 hours. It's kind, It's, you know, sort of guidance that's been developed by the CDC, but we all know that people are going to have this virus that we can recover and that if they've had clinical recovery, we're not entirely sure that that's meaningful in any way, but right now it's the best we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I do anticipate that's going to change because again, we would never test another per, a person for C. diff once their diarrhea goes away, right? right. We follow their clinical symptoms. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Don't send down the solid sample. Exactly. Exactly. Because we know we're going to find it and it's not clinically relevant if right. we do find right. it, if they're better. It's the same thing for influenza. We would never test somebody for influenza again once they've clinically recovered because we know that they're gonna, we're going to be able to recover virus. It's not clinically important. We're just in the baby stages of understanding this COVID, and I just think it's good to highlight we're doing things that we've always sort of, you know, lectured people not to do, and it's out of the abundance of caution, but I think as soon as we develop more information and, and sort of knowledge about sort of the natural history of what this looks like and how long people remain infectious we're going to get rid of those extra PCRs right. at the end yeah. of recovery. Because we really, at this point, don't have an idea of how long people remain infectious after clinical recovery at all, right? So we have a little bit of data. And so there are some researchers that are that are looking at combining not only recovery of PCR, but actual culture of the virus. Oh, and okay. there are a couple of different groups that have looked at that. Basically, they've not been able to recover viable virus beyond nine days. And so, which is where this comes from in terms of like the CDC now, you know, has changed its tune multiple times, but the most current is that we keep someone who's been infected uh, with COVID out of work 
for you know three days beyond their last fever without and without sort of fever reducing medicines and at least 10 days since their symptom onset okay. and that guidance is based on we can't recover viable virus but we haven't sort of you know moved beyond that to the hospitalized patients who now need to go to rehab because you know the those patients are older they may shed virus a little longer you know, all the studies looking at virus viability via culture really looked at young, healthy people. So, you know, those patients going to nursing homes, they have more medical issues. They may shed virus a little longer. And that is like the worst cruise ship you ever want to visit. You, know, <laughs> you want to avoid bringing COVID, you know, certainly into those congregate settings because sometimes people's behavioral issues or their, you know, right. infection prevention practices are limited and they they can't right. not spread you know, sort of modify those things. Whereas yeah. we're so lucky in the hospital, we have tons of PPE and lots of really well-trained people who are, who are taking care of these patients. Well, and it's a different, I mean, it's not their home, right? Like, so those nursing homes, it's their home. And then, so going on from there with an antigen test. The t antigen test that most everybody is familiar with is that which we use for strep pharyngitis okay, or yep. strep throat. It's not very good as a general rule. And so if you take your kids to the pediatrician and they do a strep antigen test, if it's positive, it's helpful because it tell, you know, it's, it's pretty specific. But if it's negative, well, it doesn't exclude strep. And they always will do a reflex culture because culture is more sensitive. So they'll actually send the oropharyngeal swab to the lab to see if we can grow it on a plate because strep's not shy about growing. COVID antigen is sort of similar. It looks for proteins of the, you know, sort of of the COVID virus, but it's a negative test doesn't necessarily exclude COVID. And it's not as reliable as the PCR that we're using. And so I highly doubt that we will adopt the use of an antigen test here in our facility. The PCR access we have is really good. Our lab is really good at performing those tests. And I think that the reliability of the PCR is much better than the antigen tests in general. So I don't see those coming on board at UVM at this point in time. But I could be wrong. I've been wrong about that. <laughs> now, I, sorry, I'm going to go off on a little tangent here, but the, I had listened to this podcast and it was with um, this guy who runs the Rockefeller Center and he does a lot of global health initiatives. And he was saying that one of the things that would help is possibly having home testing and you like basically test yourself um, in the morning and you can then go to work if you're negative and things like that. Would that be something like an antigen test? I mean, did you ever see anything like that with this? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. You know, there are a lot of really smart test developers that are, I think, are trying to work through these processes. I don't, an antigen test is generally easy to do and it's pretty low tech, which is the appeal, and it doesn't take very long. But it's it's not super reliable. So if someone has symptoms, yeah, you know, maybe in an asymptomatic person, you know, the stakes aren't as high. But if someone has symptoms, you you're know, gonna want, you're going to want that hospital grade test. I, I think so. I yeah. think so. I think that there there are kits that the FDA has approved. I, I don't remember the manufacturer, but I'm sure you could find it on the CDC website um, or FDA website. 
FDA has done all these emergency use authorizations, mm -hmm. you know, because time is of the essence in terms of these diagnostic tests. But they're still looking very carefully at the characteristic, like the performance characteristics of the tests, and the companies have to report back. And I think that there was a test collection kit, maybe from Quest Diagnostics, which is a big commercial lab. But I don't think that they have testing kits that you can sort of do in your own home yet. Yeah. Right. I think Quest actually does the, instead of a colonoscopy, poop in a hat and send it in test, you know, for... for... Oh, the Cologuard or yeah. something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know all the details around that, but I think, I don't think that there's a home test kit yeah. yet available. There may be a home specimen collection kit that mm -hmm. then you would send oh, gotcha. to the lab and yeah. they would process it for you. So yeah. it's just funny. You you start thinking of all these things that you, as a healthcare provider, you you kind of are like, that's never going to happen. And then, but like COVID has changed so many things about exactly. it. So I feel like everybody's sort of looking at all these different, different ways that we just aren't used to. And then there's a lot of talk, it seems, and I know New Hampshire's adopted this, the antibody test. Right. So the antibody is a protein that our bodies make in response to infection. Right. And the, the sort of commonest one I talked to Steph about, actually, yes. in the infusion <laughs> center was, boy, we have a ton of experience with things like hepatitis B surface antibodies, we yep. have a vaccine, we know what levels protect, you know, confer protection to the to the, the virus, et cetera, et cetera. So we have a lot of experience with many antibody tests. And, you know, the what they're, we're looking for are immunoglobulins. Those are the specific proteins. And there's immunoglobulin M and there's immunoglobulin G, amongst others. But those yep. are the most common immunoglobulins we would test for in an antibody test. And although there are exceptions to every rule, generally IgM or immunoglobulin M develops sooner in the infection. Yep. But it's sticky, it cross-reacts, it's not super reliable. It could be falsely positive, it could be falsely negative, just because IgM doesn't behave itself very well. And then immunoglobulin G or IgG is a, a bit more durable and sort of suggests, you know, more mature response to the infection. We have access to be able to get an antibody test for patients in certain situations. So I'm sure you guys have been following the news with this multi-system inflammatory yeah. response yes. that seems yep. to be happening in kids. One of the diagnostic sort of criteria for that are all the sort of clinical, but they suggest getting PCR as well as an antibody because it might very well be that this is, a, this is an inflammatory response that is being provoked by having had the infection. Right. So now your body is sort of making these antibodies. And again, oftentimes you can't recover the virus. You may not be able to recover the virus. So this is one way to try and clinically understand if a COVID infection has triggered this. Lots of infections trigger these types of immune-mediated phenomenon. That's not a new thing. That it's happened so frequently, because it really is really rare, that it's happened so frequently in conjunction with this COVID pandemic, I think, is the thing that is 
really triggering people's sort of interest in terms of trying to understand, like, is this a specific feature that, you know, COVID is triggering? Mm -hmm. So that would be one way that the antibody test is used. And they would look specifically for the IgG because it's a bit more reliable. But it takes probably a couple of weeks for an IgG level to be measured and measurable after infection. And, and if I understand you correctly, Cindy, it, it, Ig can IgG could be elevated in other infections as well. Well, you'd hope it would be a specific immunoglobulin for oh, that. Okay, so, okay for that COVID. Action. Okay, so there. Yeah. yeah. So it's an IgG COVID one. <laughs> you know. Right. Versus Your an IgG body. influenza. One. Yeah. Ex that's exactly right. Okay. That's exactly right. And so. So clinical reasons why people might get immunoglobulin G. I mean, I look at Steph because she's in the infusion center, and, you know, we have some patients who have deficiencies in, in immunoglobulin. Yeah, like their yeah. body just doesn't make it. Yep. And we know that they're at higher risk for certain infections. So we give them immunoglobulin once a month or however often yeah. they need it to be able to replace it. So that immunoglobulin, and it's pooled from lots of different donors, but it's it's a variety, so you would you you know theoretically exposure to one infection, you know induces a specific immune response to that infection yep. that will help protect you in the future, which is why we use vaccines so yep. effectively. Like you you know measles vaccine is really protective, and it's not because you're probably not exposed to measles. It's because your body's already seen it and made these protective immunoglobulins and you can defeat it before it gets a hold of you. So those, those are the three different tests. The thing about immunoglobulin testing is it's, a, it's an interesting thing to look at once the infection has passed. It, it's not a diagnostic tool you can use with the person in front of you who's got, you know, loss of smell and fevers and cough and shortness of breath because those immunoglobulins, your body hasn't been exposed long right. enough to be able to make those right. to be measurable. So it's not the best diagnostic test in the moment. It's very helpful from a population standpoint right. to get a sense as to, you know, what was the sort of prevalence in your population? And I'm sure you guys saw um, Governor Cuomo was saying, you know, sort of in New York City, the prevalence was much higher when they did those antibody tests as compared to sort of the North Country of New York. But those tests, like any test, are not sort of without, you know, false positives and false negatives. If, you know, we check Steph or you, Leslie, and said, oh, well, you're, you know, looks like you don't have, you know, IgG. Well, we don't know yet. There may be a group of people who don't, who we're not measuring IgG, but they may be protected because they were exposed or infected. So we don't know enough yet to really be able to use that clinically, other than outside of that sort of pediatric illness right now. Anyway. Right, 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 right. And we don't necessarily, and correct me if I'm wrong, know what level, because you can have levels of the of the IgG in your body, and right. what level could, could protect you in the future. We don't really know that information yet, or even if, or how long you, your body produces right. that. And so, right. or, and that right. could determine if we could potentially get COVID again. Is Understanding right. that correctly? Yeah. That's exactly correct. Happy surface antibody, you reach a certain titer, you're good. Yep. We don't know that number here. 
And just because someone has low antibody levels detected, it, it may be enough to protect them. If, if COVID-19 has a little bit of a genetic switch, that IgG may not protect them at all. Yeah. So we don't, or it may be very protective. Right. We don't know. Correct. Right. It's like, so with influenza, we need to revaccinate every year because it tends to mutate just enough so that we're not protected. Had we, Correct. Right. Yeah. Correct. And there are varying levels of protection. And so, right. you know, right. you, you may have flu one year that, you know, the vaccine is pretty effective effective and it trans it, it doesn't sort of mutate very much and you know the vaccine from last year is probably okay but it's it's very hard to predict yeah so. yep. how i mean you may not be able to know this but like how much data would we need to have to really start understanding that i mean is that is that years is that like a year you know how much is that just we just don't know yet it's just you just need to have the data yeah and you know i guess the question will be is there is there variation? So let's say, and I'm sure there are people looking at this, but you know, now we're seeing more infections again in China. Right. So is it because there's been a mild mutation or is it because, you know, obviously not a hundred percent of their people were infected. Like they still have night, you know, naive people who haven't right. been infected. Um, is it the at population at risk? And, you know, they're going to have to look very carefully at the genetic sequences to see, are there mutations? I can't imagine there wouldn't be mutations, but how clinically relevant those are, yeah, yeah. you know, I think will be really important. And, and how long to determine that? I would say it's, I think we're going to need at least a year of data and patterns to see sort of you know, where infections are popping up and is it because the population is naive to the infection? Right. Or has there been a, a change in the strain? CDC sort of does a lot of this genetic evaluation as well and they'll collect specimens from all over the place to be able to, you know, compare those those strains. It's far beyond my knowledge of testing and genetics, but mm -hmm. thankfully there are people who love doing this stuff. And so we have started seeing like kind of these pop-up testing sites kind of around the state. How like how are you feeling about where we are at testing people and how we are we testing enough? Do you feel like we're testing enough people? Like how what is I guess what is your feeling on that? You know, I think every expert says, you know, we have to test a lot to mm -hmm. be able to understand sort of what our community prevalence is. I think I like the idea of the testing sites. And part of the reason I think Chittenden County seemed so dense in cases was because in the beginning, we were probably one of the only sites in town that was doing all this right. testing, yeah. right? So you could see the counties. If you look at the map on, on the Vermont Department of Health website, you can, at least a month ago, you could see there are denser number of cases in the counties where the, you know, sort of testing sites had popped up. So, yes, I think it's a great idea that that's expanding. How much is enough? I, I, I don't think I know that number. The governor thinks it's a thousand tests per day. Okay. Um, you know, I think we've been getting sort of between five and 800 tests a day, which is dramatically increased, mm -hmm. you know, compared to when this first started. How, ma how much testing is is enough, you know, I'm not sure I know the answer to that you, question. What's your feeling about healthcare providers being tested, whether they're symptomatic or not? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, I don't know, and I think I mentioned this to yeah. you guys last time. I don't know. I think it. I think we know that asymptomatic people can transmit infection, but we don't know how efficient that is. And I think the only way to figure that out is to actually test a bunch of people, identify those who are asymptomatic, then look at all their contacts, this sort of contact tracing that everybody's mm -hmm. talking about, test them, and like keep testing to figure out like where the transmission is, is happening. happening. Yeah. In asymptomatic and people specifically. Yeah. Even in, I mean, I think in symptomatic people for sure. You yeah. Know, and, and early in the epidemic here in Vermont, you know, the, the Department of Health was doing all of that in the symptomatic people. And then it just sort of got overwhelmed. And now as, you know, the mitigation efforts have been so effective, now working on containment to try and identify who exactly is infected and then sort of do these tracing circles yep. until you find no infections. Mm -hmm. And that I think is really important and mm -hmm. informative. And healthcare workers should be a part of that. Yeah. But I can't imagine testing all 8,000 employees here. Like, how often do you do it? Once right. a week? Once a month? Those yeah. nasopharyngeal swabs, you know. <laughs> no thanks. No thanks, yeah. I'll do it, though. I'll test. Anybody who wants to, I'll test them. <laughs> oh, Leslie will do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, so so I think, I, I, I think that we have to be smart with our testing. I think we're a part of the population. We're going to be seeing these patients. I think I think we should. But I think we should probably start with, with the folks who we think may be at higher risk yeah. of exposure. And, you know, or a random sample. So we're not picking on one person. Because right. that just seems, you know, that I, th I think that, you know, that would be wrong to do. And then what do you do with a positive test in someone who's asymptomatic? Right. Um, have you Have you been tested? Nope. Neither have we. If somebody wanted me to be tested, I'd be happy to be tested. Yeah, yeah. You know? But, but I, ha I know my, my nine-year-old was like, Mom, have you been tested? <laughs> <laughs> uh, should I be? <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm like you guys. I've been completely hunkered down, and I just come here to work and go home. Exactly. Um, and, and I was saying, you know, I actually feel really safe at the hospital. Yeah, I we feel talking, like yeah. we were talking about it. Like, it feel, it's clean. I feel I have the PPE I need. Um, we know what to do. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's aware. It feels safe. Yeah, it does. And it's um, and it, there's the population is so down in the hospital right now. Right, it you just is right. You don't have the same contact points. Yeah. And I think you know we've done a ton of things to try and reduce risk, right? So no one walks. You know, and I keep telling my patients, I'm like, you need blood work. You actually have to come to the hospital. I think it's safer coming here than going to the grocery store. Yeah. No deference to the grocery store, but, uh, you know, there's never been this amount of hand hygiene in the hospital, ever, ever, ever. We went 48 days without a case of C. diff. Like, that has <laughs> amazing. amazing. I mean, isn't that awesome? And so we know we can do it. So that's because people are so vigilant and, you know, people are in private rooms and, you know, density of the hospital is much less. Right. People are very in tune with cleaning. We, we have bleached the entire place, right? By necessity, only because, you know, the, you know, different cleaning pro products have 
needed to be sort of altered. So right. Well, even just the 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 cleaning of the door handles, like every morning I see that coming in, in, you know, I think there's just like that, just increased vigilance. vigilance. Yeah. On Um, high touch points. uh, Yeah, exactly. That, that has improved all infection prevention points, you know, (laughs) hospital wide. That's, that's fascinating. I had wondered about that and it, it sounds like it's true that all infection, maybe we even saw less flu than we normally would have this season. Flu evaporated once we started doing all yeah, of this. That's incredible. <laughs> it really did. And um, and you know we had we before flu evaporated, we actually had a lot of cases that we had to attribute to nosocomial sort of transmission because people were here in the hospital mm-hmm. and they hadn't you know outside of the incubation phase. And so the other thing that I think has been really important and should be highlighted is if people are sick, they should be home. You know, don't try and gut it out and come to work because if you're sick, it it doesn't do you any favors because you're just beating yourself up and not going to get better any faster. And it also puts people at risk for transmission. And I think that was very heightened, especially in the beginning of COVID. And now I think people feel very comfortable saying, you are sick, go home. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a really big teaching point for the hospital in general about hand hygiene. I'd be interested to see that information get out to a wider population with regard to the infection rate on all accords going down because of the vigilance around COVID. I think it's really important information. Yeah, Yeah. and there have been, you know, it'll be hard because, you know, obviously we've done so many different things to impact this and to try and protect everyone in the hospital, both the patients and the staff. But you're right, like, you know, I mean, it's undeniable that all of these things have really reduced the, you know, the risk in other ways other right. than just COVID. Yeah. Right, so, right. Yeah. I mean, it's even, pretty powerful. Yeah, it is really powerful. powerful. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a testimony to hand hygiene works, distancing works, like staying home when you're sick works, like it all works. And, and the masks. And, and the masks, which yep. I doubt will go away anytime soon with um, in, the, in a hospital setting, even if it's probably dissipated some in the public, I bet this sticks around. Um, if I have anything to do with it, it's sticking for the yeah. long time. <laughs> I, um, I mean, in the hospital setting, yeah. no doubt. Yeah. No doubt. Luckily, it enhances the blue of my eyes, so I'm really okay with it. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, we all look lovely in this. Yeah, exactly. Of <laughs> it's like because they have to match the isolation gowns. Right, right. That's right. It's important. <laughs> yeah. We're all we're all so fashionable around oh, here. Man. Well, Doctor Noise, it's great to talk with you. As always. Yes, we really appreciate all this information because it's I think fascinating. Um, I think we all would like a, a little infectious disease doctor in our pocket and be like, so what? what's going on now? With, where, with where the nine-year-old, <laughs> with that nine-year-old that's getting our, <laughs> getting our electronics up to speed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> ID and a nine-year-old. <laughs> so it's really, it's really great that you can come on and, and answer some of our questions. So we really appreciate it. My pleasure, and um, you know, like I said, if questions pop up, please feel free to email me. I'm generally always here, so um, though, and and the email traffic has died down a little bit, so I'm probably going to be more prompt in answering. But you know, and and I think the other thing that I would just you know remind folks is that 
this stuff is changing so quickly yep. that we may be having different discussions in six weeks from now. Right. So, so really appreciate you guys, including, you know, both Dr. Alston and I, I think we're, we're so thankful, you know, to sort of lend our voices mm-hmm. and, you know, ha- happy to help at any time. Yeah. So. That's great. Thank right. You. And we're happy to have your expertise and, and access to you. Thank you for, you know, yeah. just the, the easy access to your intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Anytime. Anytime. <laughs> All right. See you, see you around the hospital. That's right. All right. See you soon. <laughs> All right. Bye. 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 <laughs>